Well, good morning, VRVC. So great to see so many of you, and I know so many of you are joining us online as well. And uh, wow, what a what a week this is, and uh, or a couple of weeks in the life of our church. And uh, so excited about our monumental VBS coming up this week. And students can't wait to hear more about your trip. Uh, students, I had an interesting thing happen on Thursday. I was in a meeting, and uh, Donna on our staff walked in and said, "I have a man on the phone." Uh, from Bolivar, Missouri, and he wants to talk to the pastor. And I thought, this cannot be good. And I'm sorry, that was my reaction. Uh, and, and he said, I own a restaurant, and your students were at my restaurant last night, and they were amazing. And I said to myself, I just have to call the pastor and compliment uh, the whole church on uh, how how these students represented your church. And I was like, I knew it. Uh, I knew that's what it was going to be. And, uh, but yeah, absolutely. I love getting calls like that. That was amazing. Well, the Christian life is a walkathon. Uh, it's one of the most frequent images in the Bible for the life with God is walking with God, walking with Jesus, following the footsteps of Jesus. And as John mentioned last week, we talked about walking in the light. This week, walking in purity. I think we would, we would all say that purity matters. Right? We would say there's a difference between fresh squeezed orange juice on the one hand and uh, an orange flavored Kool-Aid on the other, right? And so today we want to talk about the purity, the goodness that Christ has for us. And we also want to talk about the cheap and even harmful substitutes that the world tries to peddle uh, to us. And so I want you to listen for that as we read our, our scripture passage, which is 1 John chapter 2, and we'll read verses 12 through 17. So hear the word of the Lord. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you dear children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, Love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. God bless the reading of his word. I consider myself something of an expert on police procedure because I've watched many cop shows in my life. Seriously, seriously though, I, I'm not sure how often this pattern uh, occurs down at the police station. Uh, I'm not an expert, but it is a pretty common scene in the TV shows that I watch. It's the phenomenon of good cop, bad cop. Right? So in this TV setting, uh, usually the suspect sits on one side of the table and maybe there are two police officers on the other side of the table. And let's just say that good cop goes first and good cop says, hey, can I get you anything to drink? Uh, you know, uh, well, look, Johnny, you've got a bright future ahead of you and we want to help you. Uh, all you got to do is just tell us what we need to know and then, and then let us help you, all right? And in these television shows, uh, if Johnny is not forthcoming, uh, with important information, then bad cop takes center stage. And maybe he slams a 
beefy hand down on the table and, and, and says threatening words and makes threatening gestures or, or worse. Um, like I say, it's just TV. That's all I know is TV, okay? Uh, uh, but but, but in, in TV, at least, good cop pretends to be your friend. Bad cop tries to intimidate you. Uh, but what is clear is that both officers have an agenda that may or may not be in your best interest if you're the suspect. Now, this may be surprising, but as I read our passage today, it almost feels like the Apostle John is doing something similar. Not identical, not identical, but similar. Now, I'm not saying that John's trying to, to sweet talk us uh, like good cop. I'm not saying John's trying to uh, intimidate us like bad cop. I will definitely say that, that the Apostle John has our best interests in mind, which are also God's best interests. Okay? The Apostle John wants us to drink deeply from the fresh-squeezed gospel, if you will, and to avoid the world's Kool-Aid. And, and, and I believe that if this passage is, is taken in the same spirit with which it is inspired, what this passage can do for you and me today is that it can gently nudge our hearts toward purity. Using positive messaging, if you will, using negative messaging, John's words inspired by the Holy Spirit can gently nudge our hearts toward the purity that God desires for us. And so, as in the, the TV show example I mentioned a, a moment ago, in this passage that we read, I think good cop goes first. Right? And so what's the, the good cop message for us from the first part of our passage? I think the message is this. God has so much pure goodness waiting for you. God has so much pure goodness that he wants to give to you. Have you ever thought about that? Is the God that you worship a, a miserly God? who kind of, you know, grudgingly gives you the grace you ask for, one nickel at a time and not a nickel more? Is that the God that you worship? Or does the God that you worship have a, a pantry full, a refrigerator stocked, a freezer stocked with all this goodness that is waiting for you? Jesus told his disciples to ask, and it'll be given to you, to seek and you'll find, to knock and the door will be open to you. Jesus says, your heavenly Father loves to give good gifts to you. And I think this becomes so clear in, in verses 12 to 14. These verses are, 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 are beautiful verses. They're lyrical. In fact, chances are, if you have a paper Bible like me, I'm not sure about an electronic Bible, but in a paper Bible, uh, those three verses, 12, 13, and 14, uh, have, have big margins. They're set off like poetry. They're set off like lyrics to a song. Isn't it true that we often turn to songs, we turn to poetry when our hearts are, are bursting with joy? It's almost like we need a song, we need a hymn, we need a chorus, we need a psalm to express the joy in our hearts. Well, the Apostle John gives us this poem, he gives us a song, if you will, and it's addressed to the entire congregation that John is writing to. And, and, and what, what John is doing is he's celebrating God's goodness that he sees at work in the whole church. Now, the style is very typical to the style that John uses in this letter. And I wish somebody had told me this 
when I was first studying 1 John, uh, it would have been really helpful to me, and I probably should have told you last week. But, but a really helpful way of understanding 1 John is to see it as a spiral staircase. And so let's just imagine that you're in a, a gigantic art gallery, okay? And there's a spiral staircase right through the middle of the art gallery. And every time you ascend, you get a different angle on the same work of art. Maybe you've, if, if you've been reading and, and you read chapter one and you've read chapter two and it's like, oh, okay, we're talking about obedience and okay, now we're talking about obedience again. Okay, we're talking about love. We're talking about love again. And, and so, and, and, and even in this short first half of our passage, we see uh, the Apostle John kind of circling through, talking about different, uh, the same thing from a different angle. And so in this, in, in this first half, 12 to 14, uh, John addresses dear children, and then he addresses fathers, and then he addresses young men, and then he circles back, and he addresses dear children again, and then fathers again, and then young men again. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, so is John only addressing, say, elementary school boys and girls, and then, um, you know, late teens, early 20s men, and then older uh, men? Is that, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Some people read this uh, this kind of distinction of three, and they say that, that John is addressing those who are starting out their life with Jesus, and then kind of those who are sort of intermediates in their walk with God, and then, and then those who've walked with God a long time in their uh, uh, kind of veterans. I, I, I uh, have been impressed by those who have kind of a different take. First of all, when, when John uses this phrase, dear children, Elsewhere in the letter, he's talking about the whole church. And so I think when we read Dear Children, uh, I think that's all of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, uh, no matter if that was a week ago or if that was, you know, 60 years ago. I, I think Dear Children is to all of us. And I think when we hear him say fathers, I think he's addressing those who've walked with God for a long time. And I think when we see young men, he's addressing those who are, who are kind of just starting out their life with God, but they're already seeing God do powerful things in their midst. And so let's, let's read it through that lens, if, if you don't mind. So first of all, uh, we begin with dear children. As I mentioned, I think all of us who call Christ Jesus Lord are addressed here as dear children. And what does he say to us in verse 12? He tells us our sins have been forgiven on account of his name. The, the Greek name, Jesus, where we get our word Jesus, is a, a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Joshua, which means rescuer. We have been rescued. We've been forgiven because Jesus has rescued us. We just sang that, right? You alone can rescue. Jesus has rescued us from our sin. And that rescue has led to our adoption, and now we are the, the children of the Heavenly Father. When we get to verse 14, in that uh, spiral staircase, and we get to dear children again in verse 14, we, we hear that as dear children, we know the Father. Isn't that an amazing aspect of God's goodness, pure grace, that you and I get a chance to know our heavenly Father, to have our, 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 our slate of guilt wiped clean, to have our adoption papers, as it were, signed in the blood of Jesus, and to know God, not just academically, but to know God personally. As Paul says in Romans 8, verse 14, through the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. That's not just Jesus' name for his Father. Now we can call him Abba, Father as well. That's a word for, for all of us who profess faith in Christ as Lord. We are the dear children. And then there's this word for fathers. 
Once again, think of them as, as, say, men and women who've walked with God for a long time. And he says virtually the same thing in verses 13 and 14. We'll look at it in verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. What a blessing it is for any church to have spiritual fathers and mothers on just about every pew or every other pew. What a, what a blessing it is to have people who have walked with God for a long period of time and have seen God show up over and over and over again. What a blessing it is to a church. A, a, a few weeks ago at our, our first Wednesday prayer service, Micah led us in, in one of our favorite, one of my favorite hymns, which is, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus." And you know, as we were singing that chorus, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over, over and over. I, I just was thinking about that, that, that those of us who've walked with Christ for some uh, period of time have gotten a chance to see, to prove the love of Christ evident in our lives over and over and over and over again. Our longevity with God has produced this incredible track record of God's faithfulness. But guess what? There's something also very beautiful about those who are just kind of starting out their lives with God. Um, these would be the, the, you know, the, the young men. Think of them as, as maybe a, a child, a student, maybe an adult who's, who's just become a Christian, but they are just starting their walk with God. And they're already beginning to experience some of the victories that are described in the Lord's Prayer. They're already seeing God uh, provide daily bread, daily provision. They're already experiencing God's forgiveness in dramatic ways. They're already learning to forgive others. They're seeing God guide their paths uh, in powerful ways and protect them. And, uh, and because of that, look what we see happening in verse 14. So, so dear children, you know the Father. You've been forgiven by him. Fathers, as we mentioned, you know him who is from the beginning. You've walked with God for a long time. But then I write to you, young men, as I see it, those who are, who are, who are just beginning their walk with God. And then get this, because you're strong, you're strong in the Lord, the word of God lives in you. The Greek word mene can be, also be translated as remain or abide. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Isn't that powerful? Isaiah uh, says that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Even young men grow tired, right? But, but those who wait on the Lord will find a renewal of strength in him. And, and you'll find God's word is coming alive in you because you're reading scripture almost with this experimental sense, like, like God promises us, let's try it out. Let, let, let's, let's, let's trust God and, and, and see God's word come alive in us. Let's learn to wield the sword of the spirit, uh, the, the word of God. And then let's experience the victories that come. I, I love the good cup section because it motivates me to look back and and to give thanks but it not only motivates me to, to look back and give give thanks it also motivates me to hunger for more because I want more maturity in Christ you know sometimes when I see our our, our, our children our students maybe uh, newer believers 
And, and I think about what uh, Jesus says in Revelation about you've forgotten your first love. And sometimes I see that, uh, that ardor that they have for Jesus and it inspires me uh, to have that same uh, kind of trust and, and renewal and newness that God gives us. I, I think what John is saying to us is, is this is kind of the, the, the summary of the good cop message, if you will, is that there's just so much pure goodness waiting for us as we trust Christ. I know some of you have heard me share the story of the long adventure, uh, the long journey it took to me getting my doctorate. I took the, the maximum number of years to get it, which was eight. Uh, when I finally graduated, I felt like I'd been held back in class and I was so much taller than all my peers, uh, you know, when I finally graduated. Um, now, it didn't start out that way. I kind of raced through my classes. I did okay there. I took, uh, it's called preliminary exams after you finish your classes, and, and, uh, and I passed those. And so, kind of maybe three or four years in, I was what they call uh, ABD, which stands for All But Dissertation. Now, the dissertation is a book <laughs> that you write uh, that's on a topic that uh, nobody's ever written on before and that makes a unique contribution to scholarship. And I was ABD. That's all I had. And I'd written most of my papers in college the night before. And so you just stay up all night and write a book and you're good, right? But, but, but around the time I was finishing my coursework, um, uh, we got the news that we were expecting our, our first child who turns 29 today, by the way, and it was time for me to get a real job, and, and thanks be to, jo to God, I, I did get a, a real job, I actually with benefits and full-time at a church in Atlanta, Georgia, and soon, you know, after our first child was born, a, a second child came, very soon, as a matter of fact, and, uh, and, and here I am, and I'm a singles minister, and our singles ministry is really active one month, I counted up 34 events, and it was a 30-day month, and, and, uh, and, 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 and so I, I'm a pastor, and I got all these things going on at church, and I'm trying to be a good husband and a good father, and suffice to say, I was making zero progress on writing a book, and I remember talking, a Baylor professor came and preached at our church at the time, and I asked him, if, I said, you know, I'm, I'm not making any progress. Do you have any advice for me? And he said, actually, I do. He said, I want you to take a big bottle of glue and I want you to pour it on your desk chair and I want you to sit down and just start writing. That didn't work for me, uh, unfortunately. And so it was around that time that I think the doubt began to sink in. It was around that time when the discouragement began to sink in. And I had this scary thought, like what if I've wasted all this time and money an effort, and I'm not going to finish the deal. That was, that was terrifying. And I think that fear, as often happens, prompted many prayers, many urgent prayers. And somehow, soon after that, I was able to get that proposal done, and I was able to write a first chapter and get it approved. And then my pastor, who had been through the same program, uh, arranged for the church to give me a little study break. And, and at that time, our church in Atlanta, a lot of churches had basements in Atlanta, and I had a little office in the, my, in the basement, which was next to the playroom. And, and, and during this little study break, man, I was just writing, and I'd write, write, write until I got writer's block. And then I would go next door to the playroom uh, where there was this little, my boys had this little Fisher-Price 
basketball goal and a Nerf basketball, and I would just shoot baskets, and I would say, I'm going to make 10 in a row, and then I'm going to go right again. And man, you should have seen me dunk on that thing too, and I'm not bragging, but uh, uh, it was pretty impressive. But I would just, you know, okay, okay, now I'm going to go back, and I'd write some more, and write some more. And over that, um, that little study break, um, I actually got the whole thing written, and then I flew to Waco. You have to defend a dissertation, and, and that was very anxiety-provoking, you know, and they're asking me all these questions like, on page 123, when you said this, were you, were you actually contradicting someone, you know? And I was like, oh, man, you know, I was sweating, but I tried to answer all their questions, and then, uh, you know, this went on for like a long time, and then uh, the guy who was leading the discussion paused, and he said, um, well, Congratulations, Dr. Parsley. And I was like, Dr. Parsley's my wife, you know? It's like, but, but he, he called me that, you know? And it was just like, oh, man. And it was just this incredible. I mean, when I flew back from Waco to Atlanta uh, that night, I mean, I just felt like I was soaring on joy because I remembered, I remembered thinking this thing's not going to happen. Lord, this is not going to happen. Lord, Lord, please help, help, help. And it was just like the Lord in so many unexpected ways poured his pure goodness into my life. He answered this biggie-sized prayer that I in my weakness and doubt thought I would never see answered. And it was like, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over and over, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, how I proved him over and over and over. Good cop, good cop. He, God has so much pure goodness he wants to give us. But as you no doubt notice, there's also a bad cop section. Bad cop says this, the world wants to trade you poison for purity. God has so much pure goodness he wants to give you, but the world wants to give you a slow-acting poison instead. And once again, if you're reading a paper Bible like I am, maybe you notice that when you move from the poem, verses 12 to 14, when you, when you move to verse 15, you're in prose land. In fact, it is, uh, it is stark prose. Let's look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. How about an abrupt transition there? Do you hear the shift in tone? It it sounds so abrupt, doesn't it? And, 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 And by the way, what's going on there? Because the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And then... His, his student, John, his, his apostle, his disciple, John, comes along and says, do not love the world. I mean, what, what's going on here? Is, is John contradicting Jesus? Is John contradicting uh, John 3.16 from the, from the gospel that he wrote? No, he's not. He's not contradicting Jesus. When, when John speaks here of the world, he's not talking about planet Earth the good earth that God created in Genesis 1. I don't think he's talking about the human race created in the image of God. When John speaks of the world here, I believe that he's talking about the, the evil, sinful values that so often permeate the world. 
Now, I have hung out with a lot of Christians before who take John literally. They read a verse like this, do not love the world or anything in the world, to say, well, the life is a battle between the good guys and the bad guys, the Christians are the good guys, and we need to just stay as far away as possible from the bad guys, and the bad guys are people who don't know Jesus. And so uh, our goal in life is to find our you know, Christian cul-de-sacs and uh, Christian jobs where everybody's a Christian and, and, uh, and Christian businesses, remember the Christian yellow pages, and our job is to kind of just segregate ourselves from the world. And, and so a good week is where we don't even see a non-Christian for whom Christ died from Monday to Sunday. There's some people that take that literally and I think misinterpret John. So what does John mean? What does it mean to pursue purity? I mean, did Jesus live that kind of quarantine life from, from, from notorious sinners? Of course not. What did Jesus do? I mean, Jesus scandalized members of the holiness clubs, right? The, the Pharisees, he scandalized the Pharisees by the people that he regularly hung out with. He, he had dinner with tax cheats. He, he defended women who were caught in adultery. He, he befriended the, the Samaritans with the sketchy doctrine that everybody else looked down upon and avoided and, and, and wouldn't even walk through their, their country, took the long way around Samaria, and yet Jesus defended and befriended and healed and, and evangelized and discipled those folks. And Jesus also, by the way, played bad cop with those who thought of themselves as the good guys. He, he saved some of his, his harshest words for those who thought they were the closest followers of God. So what is the Apostle John saying here? I think what he's trying to tell us is that the world has a sinful set of values, a sinful way of doing things that impacts everybody. So-called good guys and so-called bad guys impacts everybody inside the church as well as outside the church. Nobody is immune, and the world's values are a kind of poison. It's a slow-working poison. They make our souls sick, and left untreated by the grace of Jesus will ultimately do us in. We will die apart from grace. So John is playing bad cop here. He's trying to startle us with, with the condition that we are in outside of the purity of the gospel. And, and he gives us these two gigantic reasons why we should fear the world's poison. And the first one is that it squeezes out our love for God. In the second part of verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. James, in James 4 verse 4, says friendship with the world, the world's sinful values, means enmity against God. Jesus, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two Masters, why not? Because your heart just has one throne. And Jesus says you can't put Jesus sitting next to money, for example, on the throne. Because money's going to shove Jesus off the throne of your heart and you'll let it. The love for the world's trophies, love for the world's operating system squeezes out love for God. There's a second problem and that is Worldly goods are transient. Worldly values, worldly goods have an expiration date. Look, for example, at, at verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not 
from the Father, but from the world. You see these three things? The lust of the flesh, kind of giving our lives over to physical appetites. Lust of the eyes, coveting the pride of life. I mean, this, this, this is almost taken uh, almost verbatim from Genesis 3, uh, chapter 6, where uh, Adam and Eve, you know, were hungry for the forbidden fruit. They, they, they saw the beauty of it. In their pride, they, thought, they believed the devil's lie that it would make them like God. It's not from the Father. These things are from the world, and they're harmful to us. And the little buzz they give us won't last. That's what verse 17, I think, underscores for us. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's like the Apostle John is slapping a a warning label on this poison the world peddles to us. It's harmful. It's transient. Uh, If you're a Chronicles of Narnia fan, it's like uh, uh, the Turkish delight that Edmund craves, but it makes him sick. The things of the world are transient. They pass away. Now, now I, I realize this last part of verse 17 is scary to read, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Well, I want to live forever. Oh, uh, do I always do the will of God? No. Yikes. You know, I don't know if you read it that way. I read it that way. But, but, but remember what Jesus said in, in John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus said that the word or the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The, the ultimate doing the will of God is trusting Jesus. It's just saying, Lord, I can't do it, but you can. I'm not holy, but you are. Um, I'm deceived, but you're truthful. And so my work is just turning to you. My work is trusting you. My work is is fixing my eyes on you and not the the trinkets of the world. You know, if, if the Apostle John, friends, is playing back up here, I don't know about you, but by the time I get to the end of verse 17, I want him to stop, okay? Uh, just stop. Uh, but, 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 but he's saying these stark things for a purpose. Right? It, it's to get us, I think, to run back to verse 12 <laughs> as dear children and to find our forgiveness in him. It's like Jesus is doing this merciful x-ray of our soul. He's pointing out all the places in us where worldly values are are shoving out Jesus and his influence. He's causing us to hunger more and more, not for cheap substitutes, but for the real thing. Uh, A few years ago, Julita and I had the privilege of going to Spain. We went to visit our son Timothy, who was studying abroad there in Madrid, and he took us to a place. He said, I want to take you to get uh, churros. And I, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect. I, I had eaten Texas churros before, and they sort of tasted to me kind of like day-old cinnamon donuts that were twisted into Twizzlers. It's kind of what they tasted to me. They weren't terrible. I mean, even a day-old donut is good, but, but, uh, but, but it, it wasn't anything to write home. He's like, I want to take you. I want to take you. We're going to go get uh, Madrid churros. And oh, my goodness. When he took us and we tasted the real thing, this was like a combination between hot chocolate and chocolate pudding 
and these were so fresh on the inside, and now I'm achieving the opposite of my sermon because now you're having the lust of the flesh and you want to eat. What, what in the world was I thinking using this? But uh, uh, all I can tell you is, all I can tell you is that, that before, every time I had eaten a churro, it was a cheap substitute. And once I tasted the real thing, there was no comparison. Maybe we should take that picture off now. And um, I'll just say this, that uh, I pray that you and I will spend more time this week tasting the real thing, the, the pure, unadulterated word of God, the blessed forgiveness that only God can give, the security that comes in knowing that all these times I've trusted Jesus in the past, he's proven himself over and over and over. The victories that come through putting our hope in him. Friends, who needs the world's Kool-Aid when we have the fresh-squeezed gospel? Let's pray. Lord, cause us to hunger for your spirit, your truth, your grace. Lord, cause us to remember the, the countless times when you have poured your goodness into our lives. Lord, convict us of the times when we uncritically, unthinkingly adopt the values of the world, when we become so fixated with the world's Happy Meal toys that just end up in some box in the garage of our lives, Lord, instead of, of craving the eternal love and truth and grace that you offer us. Lord, teach us what it means to surrender those false things so that we can hunger for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.